Ethiopia's government has declared a national state of emergency. The decision came after Tigrayan forces claimed in recent days to have captured two strategic towns. As this conflict escalates, so too does the language. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. Ethiopia is staring down the barrel at a possible civil war. There is not nearly enough news and information, which is how the authorities like it. You will not come into this building and insult me. A shouting match between a journalist and the Greek prime minister. At issue, the treatment of refugees at sea. Back from the brink, still on the air. The Polish 24-hour news channel that remains in the government's crosshairs. And the summit that may prove to be our last chance to avoid climate Armageddon. Being honest would mean admitting that we're failing. The internet comics, who unlike our politicians, are telling the story straight. Africa's second most populous country, Ethiopia, is entering a second year in a state of war. It is a conflict about power, pitting Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and his allies on one side and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, on the other. According to the United Nations, the risk of Ethiopia descending into a widening civil war is only too real. There are reports of horrific abuses committed by all parties. There is an accompanying information war that feeds off division and hate speech playing out online. By blocking communications as well as access to the Tigray region, the government has helped create the kinds of conditions in which disinformation can thrive. Platforms like Facebook have made things worse by failing to get a grip on the proliferation of hate. And now, international news outlets, especially those who reported on atrocities committed in Tigray, are feeling the heat over their coverage. It is a combustible mix in one of the most ethnically diverse countries on the continent. Our starting point this week is Tigray. A complex story of conflict in Ethiopia. Atrocities committed by all sides, including a sustained assault on truth. In a country of 115 million people, more than 90 ethnic groups and 80 languages, where multiple news outlets and platforms cannot even agree on what to call the story they are covering. Is it communal fighting or ethnic cleansing? Are these civilian casualties or victims of war crimes? A story fueled by hate speech and misinformation that threatens to tear the country apart. The information war is, is everything to this conflict because ethnic cleansing is an information war. Because you have to convince people that the existence of this other ethnic grouping somehow um, is an existential issue for them. So anytime that we've seen ethnic cleansing or we have seen conflicts that bear the hallmarks of genocide, you are talking about competing narratives. And what we're seeing then is the modern day tools, Facebook and Twitter, being used to perpetuate those competing narratives. The information conflict and the physical conflict are feeding into each other. But sometimes hate speech and disinformation are kind of reflecting the conflict on the ground and, and sometimes they're fueling them. And it's, it's, it can be hard to know which is which. In dispute, a news narrative that dates back to this time last year and the height of the pandemic, when the government in Addis Ababa postponed national elections, an order that the local government in Tigray 
ignored. Federal forces in Tigray were attacked by the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which called it a preemptive strike. The government in Addis called it causal. Some of the rhetoric has been scary, including from Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. When Abiy used similar language on Facebook, urging Ethiopians to bury the TPLF, Facebook deleted that post for inciting violence. But other posts, just as incendiary, are less likely to be taken down by social media platforms that are far better at policing content posted in English than Ethiopian languages. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Telegram, TikTok, all of the social media platforms are a culprit here. Content online that is calling for you know, violence, that is calling for the extermination of certain ethnic groups. And of course, the majority of this content is coming out from the, from the diaspora. So folks sitting out of their homes, Washington DC and London and Stockholm, these are not people sitting out of Addis or, you know, uh, or Metale that are, you know, putting out this misinformation and disinformation that we're seeing. Just last week, we saw accounts with massive platforms on Facebook and on Twitter posting things like, the war is not with the invading junta from Tigray, but with the spy next to you who wants your death suggesting that the spies are everywhere, that enemies are everywhere. And that there was another major media personality who made this bizarre, chilling argument that Tigrayan should be incarcerated en masse, uh, like the Americans did to the Japanese during World War II. This particular individual is a journalist uh, on one of the Ethiopian satellite TV stations, so ESAT. This is somebody that has thousands of followers, and his content was shared more than 6,000 times. And the impact it has is that, you know, people not only shared it, but also copy-pasted uh, his content. And we've seen now reports that the grants in Addis Ababa were being rounded up uh, for no good reason, were, were being you know, transported to uh, you know, unknown locations. And of course, the response of the platform is, it was also equally problematic where they took their sweet time to take this content down. The information war playing out on social media inevitably affects mainstream outlets. Tens of thousands of protesters were on the streets of Addis Ababa last weekend, complaining about the news coverage on CNN, BBC and Al Jazeera over what they called an anti-government bias. Belene Seyoun, press secretary to Ethiopia's prime minister, texted us on WhatsApp saying most international media have chosen to go with a skewed narrative from the beginning, shaped by the TPLF's propaganda machinery. Sayum also sent us this screenshot of a CNN story from last week. The network reported Tigrayan forces were closing in on the capital when Sayum says they were still 400 kilometers away. It shows footage first seen in a report from six months ago. Sayum said the story caused hysteria and panic. But many of the attacks on international journalists go beyond questions of accuracy. They are targeted personal and designed to stifle reporting of alleged war crimes by government forces, including mass killings and rapes. It's really important that when our reporting falls short, we are held to account. That isn't what this is. This is about making things so uncomfortable that we stop reporting. CNN, CNN, we're CNN. 
Journalists. It's impossible. We are journalists. It's impossible. Sir. They are now propagating an information war against journalists. So targeting our credibility, targeting our storytelling. They started showing clips of me personally on state television, inciting violence. And so I have had people come up to me on the street. People genuinely have been incited to believe that I and my team and other journalists are um, intentionally dismantling the Ethiopian state, that we are a threat to the existence of the Ethiopian state. The effect on journalism has been telling, chilling. When we sent out interview requests for this story, we got responses like this one from a newspaper editor in Addis. I would have liked to do the interview, but it is too dangerous for Ethiopian journalists to talk. How things have changed. Abiy Ahmed came to power in 2018, made peace with Eritrea, and freed opposition figures, activists, and reporters the previous regime, led by the TPLF, had jailed. Prime Minister. The following year, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. With each passing news development in Ethiopia, the Nobel Committee's decision goes back under the microscope. As for the TPLF, the party, and its paramilitary forces, they should not be mistaken for innocence either. TPLF for me is not a victim of this war. It's a perpetrator, one of the perpetrators of this war. And TPLF used to be the one that used to discredit journalists, the one that had arrested all of the journalists in the country, was the one that had kicked out all of the foreign journalists in the country, was the one that first shut down the internet. And they, um, they're very good at portraying themselves to be, um, yeah, the, the defenders of freedom, but they are not. Abby came to power on a wave of popular protests that were led by youth movements, by nationalist movements, primarily from the Oromia region. He famously won the Nobel Peace Prize for making peace with Eritrea. Um, that peace deal is now being looked upon with more suspicion given Eritrea's involvement in the conflict. And that was where things began to fall apart. When a lot of the, the rhetoric around the law and order operation, as, as Abe called it, Integrate, was very racialized and veering towards hate speech. We were very slow to pick up on that because this was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. The halo surrounding Abe protected him, even when it was very clearly genocidal rhetoric. And I think we really have to ask ourselves what getting those kind of prizes bequeathed upon us, how it distorts our ability to accept that actually, yes, this person may have the ultimate Western stamp of approval, but he's falling short for his country, for his people and for the continent. to Greece now, where a routine press conference turned into headline news after a showdown between a journalist and a prime minister at the podium. Mina, walk us through what happened in Athens. It started with a question on refugees and migration from a Dutch journalist, Ingberg Bogel, who lives in Greece and covers those issues. Her question was directed at the Greek prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis. When at last will you stop lying? 
lying about pushbacks, lying about what's happening with the refugees in Greece. Please don't insult mine and neither the intelligence of all the journalists in the world. I understand that in the Netherlands you have a culture of asking uh, direct questions to politicians, which I very much respect. What I will not accept is that in this office you will insult me or the Greek people. So there was Mitsotakis suggesting that asking direct questions of politicians is somehow a foreign concept in Greece. Things just got worse from there. Have you visited the new camps on our islands. Have you been to Samos? Yes, to... I'm first. No, you have not been to Samos. Yes, I have. No, please, you have not been. You, you have not been. Samos is a Greek island where a so-called migrant reception center opened recently. Bergel was the first journalist to report from there. She describes it as a prison. Quote, a barren wasteland of parched scrub, gray cement buildings, iron gates, and barbed wire. We've also seen those reports on the illegal pushback of migrants, the towing of refugees and their boats back out to sea by the authorities. The Greeks say they're investigating those allegations. What did the Prime Minister have to say on that? Not very much, and neither did much of the mainstream media in Greece. Now, many of them, like the right-wing Katamirini or Prototema, are supportive of the government. A lot of their work on this story has delved into Bergel's reporting, her personal life. They call her a pro-Turkish agent. One newspaper, Prototema, even slammed her for having, quote, Pakistani servants who walk her dogs daily. Greek journalists showing us where their loyalties lie? It looks like it, yeah. Okay, thanks, Mina. TVN24, the most popular television news channel in Poland, is celebrating 20 years on the air. It was the first 24-hour news channel launched in the former Soviet bloc. A privately owned, independent network, TVN24 is not afraid to go after the Polish government, which puts it on the opposite side of the fence as the state-owned broadcaster TVP. Shortly after, the populist, right-wing, law and justice party, known by its Polish acronym, PiS, returned to power in 2015. It conducted a brutal takeover of the public media. This year, Peace set its sights on TVN. The network is owned by an American corporation, Discovery. In theory, that should keep it safe, given that the U.S. is a major ally of Poland's. But the appetite of Peace and its leader, Jarosław Kaczynski, to control the Polish media landscape seems to have few limits. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on an anniversary overshadowed by a fight for survival. When we launched TV24 in August 2001, lots of people thought we would fail. We were working in a building still under construction. It felt a bit like guerrilla warfare. I was pretty pessimistic about TVN24 in the beginning. Would there be enough news in Poland to report 24-7? And were there enough people in Poland interested in the news to watch it? It was a gamble, a big one. A 24-hour TV channel dedicated solely to news in a country used to getting its information from radio or the nightly bulletin on the popular public broadcaster TVP. And at first, it wasn't clear if TVN24's gamble had paid off. Its maiden broadcast on the 9th of August didn't get a huge audience. But just 33 days later, this happened. 
przerwaliśmy też program TVN, ale to jest wydarzenie, które na pewno będzie miało szalenie daleko idące konsekwencje. Gigantyczna tragedia. A huge tragedy and at the same time the most attractive television event in history. To say it was a godsend for TVN24 is an understatement. Then, just days after 9-11, we had another big event. The network's first election night. Once the station had covered both a major global terrorist attack and the biggest domestic political story, it was ready to handle anything. TVN24 never looked back. 20 years on, for many Poles, it's the go-to place for news and commentary. In large part, its leading viewing figures are because TVN24 doesn't shy away from telling it how it is. Unlike the public broadcaster TVP, which is more of a mouthpiece for peace, the ruling Law and Justice Party, TVN24 seldom pulls its punches, dating right back to pieces first in power. They never got on. In 2008, Peace announced a boycott of TVN because it said the network was biased. It lasted about six months. The boycott was a result of the so-called beggar tapes. The Law and Justice Party was accused of political corruption when trying to restore a majority in Parliament. To try and prove this, TVN journalists asked an opposition MP, Renata Beggar, to secretly record her meetings with peace representatives. TVN was able to show a blatant example of political corruption, and that obviously didn't earn it any favors from peace. From there, relations got worse with every program, every question. Come 2015, peace returned to power. High up on its agenda was a plan to change Poland's media landscape. Party leader Jarosław Kaczynski borrowed a page from his Hungarian counterpart Viktor Orban's playbook, stifling opposition, facilitating takeovers of news outlets by business people loyal to law and justice, and changing the law. Peace's first target was TVP. The public broadcaster was brought to heel through the purging of journalists who were replaced by loyalists. But independent broadcasters like TVN were beyond its grasp. And as the political scandals kept on coming, the coverage between TVP and TVN looked a lot more different than the one letter in their names would suggest. When the Law and Justice Party took power, they began their assault on the public broadcaster. We thought they would grab control with a teaspoon. They used a ladle instead. It's since become a propaganda mouthpiece, and that context is fundamental to understanding how TVN24 operates today. TVN24 has always been objective. It doesn't matter who governs Poland. It has always held those in power to account. Uncovering the truth is always uncomfortable for those it affects. Among some of our biggest stories was the expose of a Polish neo-Nazi group celebrating Hitler's birthday. Government officials criticized and tried to belittle this story, claiming it was staged. 
They even set up an investigation in an attempt to smear our journalism. Then there is this so-called envelope election scandal. Millions had been spent on an election that never happened. That was our story. When that election did eventually take place and peace won again, this newsroom was next on the party's hit list. Rather than celebrating a double decade, TVN found itself countering a double attack. Firstly, the broadcast regulator decided to keep the renewal of TVN 24's license on hold for the better part of two years, making the channel sweat. Secondly, Peace proposed a new law in Parliament banning Polish broadcasters from being owned by anyone based outside the European Economic Area. Neither the broadcasting regulator nor Peace responded to our questions directly, but the party has claimed the law is designed to prevent adversaries like Russia or China from taking direct control of a Polish network. Yet the only network affected so far is American-owned, TVN. It hasn't been easy. The challenge was unprecedented. The danger was more real than ever before. Every government, and the current one in particular, is tempted to discourage the media from covering certain subjects. However, it is our right to have the freedom to report the news independently. This is what we stand by. Knowing that TVM belongs to an American corporation, we all thought it was a haven, that it was impossible for it to be threatened. How wrong we were. Suddenly this American investment was at the point of collapse. The possibility shook us. We thought if they are going after TVN, they could go after us as well. The scenario of urbanization, of Putinization of the media looked like it was becoming a reality. Polish journalists rallied in solidarity. More than a thousand signed an open letter defending free media. TVN supporters took to the streets, their placards turning the V in TVN into the victory sign. And victorious they were, for the time being. Peace's foreign ownership law remained stalled in Parliament. And less than a week before its license expired, after 594 days in a state of regulatory limbo, TVN24 was finally granted an extension. However, a Damocles sword is now hanging over the network. Another TVN license, TVN7, expires next year and is potentially more serious because it's a big terrestrial channel and it needs a Polish license. That gives the regulator more ammunition against its American owners, Discovery. So the threat hasn't entirely gone away. For peace, there has to be a permanent war, a permanent enemy. Even if the party backs down for a moment, it's a tactical retreat to wait for the right moment to strike again. Every Polish citizen knows that when those in power say we will have some influence over the media, already that's dangerous. But looking at what's happened to TVP or the regional press, polls know it actually means we will have huge influence. Law and justice thinks that if you have the media, you can control people and is trying really hard to limit press freedoms, to unify the coverage into one voice. 
TVN24 is an alternative, a counterbalance to singular coverage. I hope it stays that way. And finally, the COP26 climate summit in Scotland is now over. Two weeks of talks, photo ops and speeches, some of which described the meeting as humanity's last chance to avoid a total climate catastrophe. The happy talk has world leaders calling the summit a success. They have agreed to a variety of measures that would reduce global warming. The reality is most of those agreements are totally non-binding and even if implemented, scientists say they fall far short of what is really needed. Political leaders have made and broken the same kinds of promises before. So where does that leave us? With the Australian comedy news outfit, Juice Media, giving us a glimpse of what it would look like if politicians called the climate crisis what it really is. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Hello, I'm from the government with an update on how we're handling the climate crisis. We know you're all counting on us to solve this problem so humanity can keep enjoying its favorite pastime, continuing to live on this planet. The good news is we've promised to reduce our emissions. And if you take all our promises and add them together, that puts us on track for still very much by 2050. And that's why there's a huge gap between our promises and where we need to be. We don't talk about that gap because that would entail a complex process called being honest. Being honest would mean admitting that we're failing. And we can't do that because then we'd have to stop failing. Net zero by 2050 means that instead of being honest this decade by taking this path, we leave the being honest part to the last minute by taking that path instead. As you can see, both lead to net zero in 2050 but they're very different journeys because this path adds this many emissions to the atmosphere and that one adds three times as much. This has been a message from your local government franchise. Goodbye. Authorised by the department for blah blah blah.